You know, earlier this week I was reading a book and the very first sentence of the very first chapter said, we are living in angry times. And I thought to myself, I didn't know this. I didn't know that this book was published this year. So I looked at the information on the book and I found out the book was actually written in 2018. And I thought, well, that's kind of interesting. In 2018, the author said we're living in angry times. I thought yeah, the book's a little outdated because I think a lot of us would agree we live in very angry times right now. People seem to be pretty angry. People seem to be very upset. A lot of people are very frustrated. A lot of people are very hurt. And we're seeing it played out in the world in some ugly ways. We're seeing it played out on social media. We're seeing it played out in the news in a lot of difficult ways we're seeing it. I probably don't even have to talk about this because all of you could probably tell me five or six illustrations of angry times that you've seen. But I think the biggest problem is that we are seeing it in the church as well. Sometimes we're seeing the anger of the world into the, in the church, and that's very concerning for several reasons. I mean, number one, it shouldn't be in the church. I think you understand when it's in the marketplace because there's not a, there's not a standard consensus of how you deal with anger in the world. But inside the church, we should know better. Inside the church, we have a standard of righteousness that we can live by. So I think all of us are kind of asking each other, what's going on in the church? What is happening? What is the problem? I think if you want to boil it down to simplicity, I think the problem is in the church, we've kind of forgotten what it means to love other people. We've forgotten the command that Jesus gave us to love other people. A brilliant theologian out of Oklahoma City, Sam Storms, he calls the following two verses that I'm going to read, he calls them some of the most famous declarations that came from the lips of Jesus. That's how important the scripture I'm going to read to you is, is that a theologian would say these are some of the most, most famous declarations that Jesus makes. In John 13, verse 34 through 35, Jesus says this, so now I am giving you a new commandment. Love each other just as I have loved you. You should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Prove to the world. In other ways, in other words, what Jesus is saying, how you love other people is going to show the world if you are authentic or not. Authentic is kind of a big word that we're using right now. Everybody says, I want to be authentic. What Jesus says, the way you can show if you are an authentic follower of Jesus will be reflected on how you love other people. So you notice Jesus didn't give a command and say, hey, I suggest that you love other people. He didn't say, when all else fails, love other people. He didn't say, after you argue really good, then love other people. He said, no, he said, I command you to love other people. That command, that's kind of a pretty big and a pretty powerful word. Jesus plays on that theme of command in the next two chapters of John. In John 14, verse 15, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And then in John 15, verse 14, Jesus says, if you are my friends if you do what I command you to do. 
I think it's pretty clear from these verses that Jesus is pretty intentional that we love other people. There's no way that you could go back to the Greek manuscript and parse out that verse to mean, I suggest for you to love other people. Jesus is pretty serious. I want you to love other people. Now, there's a lot of different words for love that Jesus could have used. And I think sometimes you read love other people, we don't know what that really means because we might say, I love cheeseburgers. What kind of love is Jesus talking about? There's at least three words to, that talk about love in the Greek New Testament. There's probably four, and sometimes people would say there's more. But the word Jesus is using here is the word agape for love. Jesus is very intentional on the words that he would pick to describe love. See, the essence of the word agape love is that it's a strong decision and a commitment that you are making. The essence of agape love is that it is not a, some kind of romantic love. It's not some kind of a sexual love. It's not a, it's not a love that you have just because you like hanging out with that other person. He's not talking about that. He's talking about love that involves a faithful commitment to another person when you are probably going to get nothing in return. That's the kind of love Jesus is talking about. You know, it's, it's easy to love somebody that you're attracted to. It's easy to love someone that you like spending time with. It's easy to love someone that you enjoy hanging out with. But how do you love a person that you don't really enjoy? That can be a pretty difficult person. See, that's what Jesus is talking about here. He's saying that's the kind of love you're going to do. In fact, this agape love, it is one of the highest forms of love that's written about in the Bible. And it's the kind of love that God has for each of us. Agape is how God loves each of us. It's a self-sacrificing, unconditional love. That's how God loves me. That's how God loves you. And that's how God is going to call us to love the rest of the world. So how do you love without that feeling? How do you do that? Let's be honest. Agape love doesn't come natural for us. If it did come natural for us, I wouldn't be having this message and the book of John could probably be kind of eliminated from the Bible. You wouldn't need that so much. But we need, that's why we have this message, because we need to learn how to love with the love that God has for us. Now, if you're pretty smart and you've been in this, this church for the last few weeks, you know, we know that we're in a series on the Holy Spirit. So you know my conclusion is going to be we can do this by the power of the Holy Spirit. You can all see that's coming. And that is true. That's kind of my closing. I'll kind of tell you early. But I think it's important for us to be able to say, how does the Holy Spirit get us to love other people? How does he do that? So I'm going to talk today about two ways that the Holy Spirit helps us love other people. He helps us love other people, number one, through seeing, and number two, through listening. Through seeing and listening, we're going to love other people. See, Jesus teaches a lot of good lessons all through the New Testament, especially through parables. Jesus has a little niche of telling parables that are loaded with meaning that he likes to tell. So in the book of Luke, in chapter 5 and chapter 15, Jesus is criticized a lot by the Pharisees for having meals with sinners. 
All right, so in Luke 5 and Luke 15, Jesus is confronted with the Pharisees. Once again, the Pharisees who just have it out for Jesus, they're annoyed with Jesus because Jesus is nice to people. They don't like the fact that Jesus sits down and has meals with tax collectors and with sinners. They don't like that. See, in the Pharisees' mindset, if you sit down and have a meal with somebody, that means you approve of their behavior. So Jesus is sitting with tax collectors. He's sitting with prostitutes. He's sitting with marginalized people. And the Pharisees are standing on the sideline going, wait a minute. If he's sitting with them, that means he must approve of the way they're living their life. Or they're thinking if Jesus is eating with them, then he is guilty by association. So the Pharisees have this whole idea, you can't have fellowship with people that are not like you, or you cannot have fellowship with the people that are not following the Old Testament rules and regulations. So they have it all out for Jesus. They're always harassing Jesus because he's nice to people. And so the question all through the gospel is, how is Jesus going to respond to these Pharisees? What is he going to do? Now, on one hand, Jesus could ignore them, which at times he does. But then there's other times Jesus is going to confront them. And there's times that Jesus is going to give them a message through a parable to try to teach them something. So in Luke chapter 5 and verse 32, Jesus is going to confront the Pharisees. He's going to give them a little teaching. He says to the Pharisees, he says, I have come to call, excuse me, let's start over. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know that they are sinners and need to repent. See, Jesus speaks to the Pharisees, Pharisees and he says to them, I'm a friend of sinners because I'm missional. I'm friends of sinners because I'm strategic. I came to lead people to repentance. I came to lead people to new life. And see, what the Pharisees have a hard time with is Jesus does it in a way that they don't do it. See, the Pharisees' mode of operation is just condemnation. But Paul tells us how Jesus does it. Paul, in, in, chapter, in Romans 2, verse 4, he says, Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sins? See, this is how Jesus deals with tax collectors and sinners. He shows them kindness. He shows them compassion. He shows them mercy because God knows that when Jesus shows kindness, people repent from their sins. See, Jesus came to earth with a mission to show people how they can live in the kingdom of God, how they can live in a relationship with Jesus, and he does it through the outpouring of his kindness. And Jesus is showing kindness is not just how he deals with people, but it's a prototype of how the church would deal with people as well. That because Jesus shows kindness, we would show kindness as well. So about 10 chapters later in Luke 15, verse 3, Jesus is harassed by the Pharisees once again for being nice to people. So this time Jesus decides he's going to teach them through a lesson or he's going to teach them what is called the parable. And in Luke 15, there is a three-part parable. The first part is about a shepherd who has 100 sheep and he loses one and he goes out to find that sheep. And the second part of Luke 15 is about a woman who has 10 coins and she loses one coin and she goes to find it. And the, it ends Luke 15 with a story of the man with two sons, commonly referred to as the prodigal son. 
So I'm going to talk about the woman that has 10 coins and she loses one today to see how the Jesus shows us how to see people. See, in Luke 15, 8 through 10, let me read it. It says, Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Won't she light a lamp and sweep the entire house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she will call in her friends and neighbors and say, Would rejoice with me because I found my lost coin. In the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels whenever one sinner repents. So here's the story of a woman who has 10 coins and she loses one. And she's going to do whatever she can to find that coin. Now, you probably wonder, how much is that coin worth? A lot of research I read said that coin is probably worth about a day's wages for this woman. And there's a lot of speculation that this woman probably doesn't have very much money. She's probably poor. So maybe that coin in today's dollar amount, maybe it's worth about 80 or $100. So that's a significant amount of money that I think we would all look for 100 bucks if we lost it. And especially if you didn't have much money. So you can see this lady really wants to find this coin. She's very determined to find this coin. And the house that she lives in would make it very difficult to find a coin if you dropped it on the ground. The house that she lives in is probably a size of a one-stall garage. It probably has uh, just kind of a, a, a dirt floor with maybe some rocks in the floor. It's not a nice flat floor. She probably has one teeny little window in her house that's used more for ventilation than it is to see sunlight in and out. Basically, her house is just probably a place that she sleeps at night and stores her stuff in. So when she loses a coin in her house, it's going to be very tricky to find. So she looks through the house. She probably opens a door to get light in, and the verse tells us that she lights a candle so she can see or lights her to, to look around and she can't find it. Since she's not finding it. And after she can't find it, she doesn't give up. What does she do? She gets out a broom to look for it. You wonder, why does she get out a broom? See, she starts sweeping the floor back and forth. Why does she sweep? Because she's listening for the coin. She's listening for that coin. She knows if she keeps sweeping back and forth, eventually she will hear the coin. See, this is a picture of how Jesus looks for the lost and rescues the lost. He listens to people. He listens to people. And in turn, that is how we are to reach people as well, by listening to people. Sometimes we get so busy talking that we forget to listen. And the way that this woman found that coin was through her ears. She could hear that coin and she could respond and find that coin. And all through the scriptures you see how Jesus listens. And that's one of the ways that we can show love to people is by listening to people listening to their story, listening to the questions that they have, or listening to understand why do they believe the way they believe and why do they do things the way they do. You need to listen to people to find out whys. Why do they do this? And I think that's one of the things that Jesus is trying to show the Pharisees. 
He needs to start listening to people instead of just judging people. And so it's interesting that this woman finds this coin. She finds this 80 or $100, and she's so excited she's going to throw a party. Like, wow. I think maybe I'm a little too pragmatic. I don't think I would throw a party just because I found $80 in my pocket. Because I'm being pragmatic and thinking you're going to spend more money on your party than actually the $80 that you thought you lost and now you found. But see, I think what we see is that so often in our culture, it's easy to value things by how much they're worth. It's easy to look at a price tag and then we discern, de- determine how much we like that thing. And it's easy to do the same thing with people. We like people or value people based on how much they earn or how much we think they earn or we value people based on the possessions that they have. We often value people more by what they have than by who they really are. I think sometimes we even do that in our own life, that sometimes we don't think we're as valuable if we don't have as much. But see, the story of the woman with a lost coin is that the coin's value is not determined by its purchasing power. The value of that coin has nothing to do with its value in the marketplace. Its value has nothing to do with what it can purchase. See, the value of that coin is determined by the owner. The value of that coin is determined by the owner of that coin. See, the coin has a lot of value for one reason, and that's because there's an image on that coin. And because there's an image on that coin, that coin can be redeemed. See, like a coin with an image on it, you and I were created in the image of God. And because we are created in the image of God, we have his image on us. And our value is determined by the image of God that is on us. See, in Genesis 1, verse 27, it says, So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, man and female, he created them. Because God's image is on each of us, we have value. See, when God looks at each of us, he looks at us and he sees his image on us. And he says, that's mine. You're valuable because you are mine. That's my creation. I created you. And because I created you, I determine your value. See, so often we think our value is determined by what we did right or determined by what we did wrong. We think our value is determined by our track record. But see, God looks at us and says, your value is not up for dispute. You're valuable for one reason, and that's because you're created in my image. And what you've done in the past does not determine your value because God has agape love to every single person. That is, love is unconditional. His love is not determined by your track record. His love is determined because he created you. And because he created you, he determines your value. And that's what we see in this parable. That your value is determined by seeing the image of God on a person. And that your value is determined by what the owner of the coin believes. I think it's important that I think we all know that a dirty, dirty coin 
that has a lot of dirt on it, there's lots of nicks and dings, has the exact same value as a beautiful brand new coin. They both can be redeemed for the same amount. And the same is true with people. A person that's pretty dirty and kind of obnoxious and nobody really likes has the same value as a person that looks like they're doing everything perfectly for one reason, is they were both created in the image of God and they bear God's image. Because you have the image of God on you, you have value and you can be redeemed. And that's how we love people. I love this quote by James Montgomery Boyce in his book, The Parable of Jesus. He says, You may be worthless in your own sight because you can only see what you've made of yourself. But you should learn that you are valuable to God because, unlike yourself, he is able to see what you're created to be and what he can make of you. That's your value. Because God can see who you are and what he created you to be. And that's the same attitude we have to have with other people that we don't like. Or we find a little obnoxious. Or we find them pretty difficult to be around. We need to have that same perspective as James Montgomery Boyce taught that maybe in our own sight they're worthless or they're obnoxious. But that's not how God sees them. God looks at every single person and says, that person can be redeemed. See, that's what the Pharisees can't see. They can't see what God could make of a person. They only can see the way the person is at that moment in time. And if we are going to love other people and love other people well, we have to resist becoming like the Pharisees that can only see a person at one moment in time. Instead, we have to be like Jesus and we have to look at a person and say, I see how that person can be transformed. I see how that person can be redeemed. I can see how that person can become who God created them to be. That's how we love other people. But before I continue to go on in this message, I have to go back to John 13, where John 13, Jesus says, a new commandment I give you. And I have to ask the question, what is so new about loving other people? Why does Jesus call this a new commandment? Because this commandment of loving other people and love kind of goes back to the book of Genesis. This is nothing really new. You look at Leviticus, Levit Leviticus 19 says, but you shall love your neighbors as yourself. So why is Jesus saying, I'm giving you a new commandment? It seems like, nope, it's the same old one, Jesus. What is so new about this commandment? It's easy to wonder, am I missing something here? Because I don't see anything new at all. See, Jesus isn't talking about a new commandment. He's only talking about a new way to love. He's saying you're going to love in a new way. See, now you're going to love people the same way that Jesus loves you. Jesus just changed things, how we're going to love other people. See, Jesus saying, you're going to love other people by listening to other people. And you're going to love other people by seeing them the way that God sees them. In order to get the most out of Luke 15, the parable that we read about the woman with the ten coins, I think it's good to jump back to Luke 10. Luke 10. 
go back five verses to see the central theme in the Bible of Luke 10 about love. In Luke chapter 10, verse 25, this, this lawyer comes to Jesus and he says, Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? The smart guy comes to Jesus and said, What should I do? And Jesus replies to him and says, Well, what does the Old Testament law tell you to do? So it's obvious this man is really smart by his answer. And in Luke 10, verse 27, he says, The man replies, You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. See, it's obvious that this man is really smart because his answer, he just merged together Deuteronomy 6 with Leviticus 19. He took two verses and kind of put them together. It's like, okay, guy, this guy's really smart. Why is he asking the question? See, the heart of the reason I think the man's asking the question is because he's trying to figure out who's this neighbor that you're supposed to love. Because this guy's kind of smart, and he's realizing it's hard to love other people. Sure, it's easy to love Jesus. It's love easy to love God because, well, they're good, and they're kind, and they give you good things, and they take care of you. But this lawyer wants to know, Who is this this neighbor I'm supposed to love? I want a little clarification on this neighbor because it's kind of hard to love other people. So what does Jesus do? He doesn't give him a direct answer. Instead, he tells him the story of the Good Samaritan. Probably a lot of you are familiar with the story in Luke chapter 10, verse 30, verse 37. Let me read it. It says, Jesus replied with a story. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along. But when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed by him. A temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, and he passed by the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where they took care of him. The next day he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, Take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Now which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by the bandits, Jesus asked. The man replied, the one who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said, yes, now go and do the same. I think when we read the story, it's easy to come to the conclusion that we are supposed to be the good Samaritan. But that's what we're supposed to do. And I think you read the story and say, okay, that's going to be pretty hard. It's going to be pretty difficult. But you know what? I'll, I'll give it a try. But see, what makes it even more difficult is that the animosity and the bitterness between Jews and Gentiles is probably equivalent to some of the animosity and division that we have between different races and ethnic groups in our country right now. The Jews pretty much hated the Samaritans. Anything negative they could think about a Samaritan, they probably had thought about that. And the rift between the Jews and Samaritans went back years and years. So if you're going to be like, if you're supposed to be the good Samaritan, that means you're also supposed to love this Jewish person who obviously hated you and spent most of their life ridiculing you and making up lies about you. So that makes it even harder for you to be a good Samaritan. And I think you read the story and you're like, I really have no idea how I'm supposed to do this. 
but I guess I'll pretend I can do it. That's kind of what we do sometimes when we don't know how we do it. Well, maybe I can just pretend I can do it. But let me take pressure off you today that none of you can be the Good Samaritan. None of you are supposed to be the Good Samaritan. None of us in this room could be the Good Samaritan. See, only Jesus can be the Good Samaritan. Jesus is the only one that can show that pure agape love. Jesus is the only one that can stop by the side of the road and help that man that was beaten. So you notice what happened, that man got beaten to the point that he was half dead and he was stripped of his clothing. See, common theory is the reason why the Jewish, the people that worked in the Jewish temple walked across the other side of the road is they could not identify that man as a Jewish man. They didn't know if that man was a Jew or if he was a Gentile or he was a Samaritan or what he was because he was beaten to the point he could not even be recognized. And because his clothing were gone, they couldn't tie him to an ethnic group or a group of people. So they ignored him because they really weren't sure what kind of a person that was on the side of the road. See, sometimes when we see a person incorrectly, we don't help them. And that's one of the reasons that Jesus came to teach us is that you see people because they are created in the image of God. It doesn't matter what they look like. And you see, Jesus is the only one that can really help the man. Jesus is the only person that can heal a, a person. Jesus is the only one that can bring restoration to a person. Jesus is the only one that could help a lost person. Jesus is the only one that could pour, pour oil and wine into a person's wounds. And Jesus is the only person that could resurrect somebody. So if Jesus is a good Samaritan in this story, what am I to do? What's my part in this story? See, Jesus often has this ability to show us what to do and then make us wonder, well, how are we going to do that? See, in the story of John 13, our job is to receive the love that Jesus has for us. That's the starting point. That was Jesus' instructions to the lawyer, is receive the mercy that God has for you. And that's the, our starting point. If we are going to love other people, then the first thing that we need is to receive the love that God has for each of us. And because Jesus loves us, we can actually show love to other people. But the love that we can show other people is predicated on the fact that we have first received God's love. Because that transforms us to be able to show love and compassion to somebody else. See, in the story, that man laying on the side of the road was just a picture of what our life was like before Jesus. That our life before Jesus was that nobody could recognize us. That our life before Jesus is that we didn't look anything like who we were or what we were supposed to be until Jesus came and picked us up. And the point of John 13 is to show us you need to receive God's love first because once you receive God's love, it's going to transform you and you will be able to help and love other people. See, we can't show other people kindness unless we've received God's kindness. So the message of John 13 of loving other people, it's based on number one, have you received God's love? Do you know that God loves you? 
Do you know that God loves you unconditionally? Do you know that God loves you despite if you are clean or you're like that dirty coin? That God just sees your value because of your image, of his image that is on you. That's the starting point to love other people is to receive the love and kindness that God has for each of us. And then Jesus says, after you receive his love, then you can love other people. I mean, Jesus is so excited about loving other people. In these two verses, he says three times, love others, love others, love others. Now, how are you going to do that? See, fortunately, Paul gives us a little glimpse in Romans 8, verse 26. He says the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. See, our weakness is not just our saying, I can't do it. But our weakness is our vulnerability where we go before Christ and we say, I can't do this. I need your help. I need you to fill me with your Holy Spirit. I need you to fill me with compassion. I need you to open my eyes so I can see people the way you see them and my ears would be open so I can hear people the way you hear them. For the last two weeks, we looked at Gideon and how Gideon defeated an army that was thousands and thousands of people. He did it. He defeated them because he had the word of God in one hand and he had that clay jar on the other hand with that little candle inside. And once that clay jar was broken, the light and the power of the Holy Spirit could shine forth. And that's how God says we love other people. When through his kindness and love he shows each of us that clay jar that represents our life is broken and it's humble before God, then the power of the Holy Spirit comes forth. And that's how we're going to love other people is through humility. It's coming before God each and every morning and acknowledging before God that what you're asking me to do to love other people, I can't do. That it's hard and it's difficult and I'll never do it. And asking him for the power of the Holy Spirit to come into your life so you can do it. But also allowing God to break you to the point you admit your weaknesses and you admit your vulnerabilities. In Colossians 1, verse 8, we have this promise. It says, Paul is saying to the church, He has told us about the love you have for others that the Holy Spirit has given you. The love that you have for others is because the Holy Spirit has given it to you. That's how we can love other people, as the Holy Spirit gives us that love. But it's through our weakness. It's through our brokenness. It's through our vulnerability that we can receive that love that the Holy Spirit's going to give us and that our eyes can be opened and our ears can be opened so we can see and hear. Probably for a lot of you, you've heard this message before. For some of you, probably what I've just said is nothing really new. But it's important. It's important that we keep going back to Jesus' commandments to love. Because as I said in my opening, I think we all realize that we are in a time in our culture, in our world, in our nation where people aren't loving well. In the church and outside of the church. And it's easy to look at what's happening in culture and just say, well, that's the way it is, and participate in it. And I think Jesus, what he always does is he always calls us out 
It says you've got to act different. You've got to be different. We live in the kingdom of God. And if we live in the kingdom of God, our actions and our behavior and our beliefs have to be different from the rest of the world. On one hand, we're excited. We're emerging from COVID that looks like. And that's great and that's exciting, but it's also a difficult time because you're seeing there's still so much anger and frustration and hurt over what we've been through the last year. And my concern is that we're going to get more and more divided even after we get through what this next threshold we're going through. Unless we remember to love other people. Unless we remember to look at people and say, they're an image bearer. That's all that counts. Maybe they're an idiot on Facebook, but they're still an image bearer. And to remind us to listen to people. People have stories. A lot of people have been hurt over COVID. A lot of people are grieving huge losses. And nobody's listened to them. And that's where we can come in and make a difference. We've got to see people different. We've got to listen to people different. Mike and Maddie and Chad are going to lead us in one final song. But as they come up, let's stand together. Let's stand together acknowledging, God, we, we need you to do something. We need your Holy Spirit. Because, God, we know we can't do what you're calling us to do on our own. And none of us want to walk out of here today saying, yeah, that was a nice message, what's for lunch? God, I'm asking that here in the sanctuary, and here people are home or maybe in their car, Lord, we come before you acknowledging that we're weak when it comes to loving. We're weak when it comes to loving other people well. We're weak when it comes to doing agape love. And we ask, God, that you would give us the ability to do that. That you would empower us. That you empower us in our weakness. Empower us in our humility. God, I pray this out of Psalm 51. Create in us a clean heart, O God. Renew a royal spirit within us. Do not banish us from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me, but restore to us the joy of our salvation and make us willing to obey you. God, I cry out on behalf of this community that you would restore to us the joy of our salvation and that you'd make us willing to obey you. That's a big ask. That's a big prayer. But God, we know that you can do that for us. So we come before you, God, and ask that you'd have mercy on us, O oh God. Would you have mercy on this church? Would you have mercy on this city? Lord, would you wash us from our guilt and our sin and our stains? And would you purify each of us today, God, through your Holy Spirit? God, I'm asking that as we leave this building today and as people are at home 
turn their computer off or their device off, that we would be changed and transformed. That she would give us a desire to love that we've never had before. God, would you open our eyes and our ears to see and hear how you hear and see. God, we need transformation in our nation and in our city. And Lord, none of it's going to happen if we are not transformed. So God, transform us by the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.